And one of the great things about children's stories and about those kinds of stories is they have such a power to kind of capture something and, and um, really teach us about it uh, in a very simple but compelling way. This is one of the great things I love about Jesus, is Jesus was a great storyteller. When I was growing up in church, like many of you, we had this thing before church called Sunday School. Like we needed more schools, so they named it Sunday School. And uh, it worked really, really well and still does in many places. And one of the things that it was so powerful about Sunday School was uh, the teachers there could really bring the stories of Jesus alive. And every year, you could count on uh, the teachers in my church, at least, to tell the parables of Jesus in some very creative ways. And uh, it's amazing to me how those stories have stuck with me over the years. One of them probably was taught as much, if not more, than any other story, and it is a story we're going to look at today called the Good Samaritan story. Now, it is called that, uh, as you obviously know, for a certain reason, but in both religious and non-religious circles, it has to be one of Jesus' most popular stories. Uh, the reason I say that is because there's even a law, uh, the Good Samaritan law in our country, named after that parable. And today we're going to look at it because I think it expresses the kind of love and the kind of effort, if you will, of love that we are supposed to demonstrate as Christ followers. Now before we dive in here, let me try to apply this a little bit to our lives. And I want to set it up by telling you what prompted Jesus to tell this story in the book of Luke. The parable is kind of designed around two sets of debates and they happen between Jesus and a lawyer. And the first one is contained in Luke chapter 10. And I'm just going to read this first part here. It says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Now this seems like a pretty... Knocked our power out. It seems like an expert in the law is coming to ask Jesus a question. But that's really not what is happening. In verse 25, the writer gives us an indication that the expert had actually come to trap Jesus and to test him. Not the smartest thing to do in the world, but he did. But Jesus knew he was being tested, so when the lawyer puts this question forth, when he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life, rather than give an answer, Jesus does what he does a lot, and it drives people crazy. He answers a question with a question. You see, one of the prevailing assumptions of the day was that you could do something to inherit eternal life. And Jesus recognizes right away that at the heart of this question, he's being asked that question. So he says to him, how do you read the law? And here's two answers. The first answer comes from the lawyer. Jesus actually has the lawyer answer it, and he comes up with a great answer. He quotes Deuteronomy and Leviticus and he says, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your mind and soul and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says to him, you have answered correctly. Do that and you will live. 
Really, that should be the end of the story. In other words, you've answered right. You have the right theology. You have the right approach. But there is a lingering question, and this is really the question. Does this guy have the life to act on this? In other words, is his intellectual stance in line with his performance in life? Does he really understand that there is nothing he can really do to inherit eternal life? For some reason, the lawyer isn't satisfied. Maybe he's saying these words to himself, like, okay, love God, love my neighbor. And he realizes he's not quite finished, and he's saying basically, or he hears Jesus saying, if you want to do something, then all you really need to do is continually love God with all your heart and love other people with all your heart. <laughs> and at this, I think he gets a little nervous because I think he was really hoping that Jesus would give him a list. You know, isn't that really what we want in life? We want a list. If we can just match the list up to our actions, then we know that we're on board. But there is no list. Jesus doesn't lay out a list for him. Jesus says, listen, the list is limitless. The command is really open-ended. It kind of requires an un unqualified, unlimited love for God and people. So the lawyer decides, okay, let's start a second round of debates. This time there's two questions and two answers again. He pulls on his collar a little bit and he goes, okay, Jesus, who is my neighbor? <laughs> now this is where the conversation gets a little sketchy. It's like he's asking, exactly, Jesus, who do I need to love? And Jesus says, people. And the lawyer has to be thinking, that's great. Define people for me, Jesus. <laughs> well, obviously to us, it's pretty obvious because we're reading the story now. But it wasn't so clear back then. You see, he's looking for a loophole. He's looking for some way out. Who exactly am I supposed to love, Jesus? If I can just get that straight, then I'll be okay. Let me show you something on the screen. And this is a real important part, I think, of this story. This is kind of just a, a little visual that Carol helped me create. And it highlights the Jewish social structure as it existed in Jesus' day. If we start from the inner circle, you'll see that there was first the priest. And of course, the person uh, in the Jewish structure that would have the most clout would be the priest. And if we worked outward from the center of the circle, the next kind of level would be what is known as the Levites. And they were the temple workers. They weren't quite to the level of the priest, but still pretty high. And then outside of the Levites, a little farther, would be the Joseph Jew. This would be a direct descendant of Joseph, who was neither a Levite nor a priest, but still pretty important. And then outside of the Joseph Jew, at the very outer edge, would be what we would call the untouchables. This would be tax collectors, outcasts, sinners, and basically what they called Gentiles or Samaritans. And the question, and this is really important, that the lawyer is asking is, how far do I have to go out of the circle to consider someone my neighbor? Now here's what Jesus, this is what this guy is hoping Jesus will say. He's hoping he's going to say, you got to love the priest, you got to love the Levite, you got to love the Joseph Jew. 
If he says that, then this guy knows I'm in like Flynn because I can do that with my eyes closed. You see, and this is the problem, the lawyer is still living in the do part of this question. What must I do to live? He doesn't realize that in order to inherit eternal life, one simply needs to live in mercy and grace. And he doesn't want to live in mercy and grace because that takes away all of his credit. He prefers, like many of us, to live by our own intentions. He wants to present himself as a significant, righteous man before God. So he asked the question that everybody in this room is asking, whether we know it or not, and that is, okay, God, who really is my neighbor? I mean, who really today in 2016 is my neighbor? What I want you to know today is that 2,000 years after this story has been told, the answer really hasn't changed. It's easy, friends. It's easy to love people when it takes very little effort. But what about today when you are stretched? What about when love becomes tough? What about when it becomes really, really an effort? Well, Jesus is about to blow this lawyer's mind. I'm guessing that Jesus would have said something like this. While I answer this question, dude, you might want to sit down for a second. Because I want to tell you a story. And Jesus then tells us this famous parable. A man was going down through Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. And a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, and he bandaged up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. Then he took the man on his own, on his own donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. This is a rich, rich story. Every time I read this story, I always think of the story when it says that he was robbed and beaten and left half dead. I always think of the story about the guy who found the magic lamp. You may have heard of this. And when he rubbed this lamp, a genie appeared, and he told the man, he said, I'm going to give you three wishes, but my wishes are a little different. He said, whatever I do, I must also do as twice as much for your worst enemy, whoever that is. The man thought about it. He thought about how horrible his worst enemy had been to him. He thought about it for many, many hours, and finally he decided on his three wishes. The first thing he wished for was a billion dollars. He received a billion dollars, but his enemy received two billion. And then he said, I want a lavish mansion on a beach. And he received his mansion, but his enemy received one twice as large. And finally he said, for my third wish, he thought about it, and he said, I'd like you to beat me half to death. <laughs> not the point of the story by the way <laughs> we have a guy beaten half to death but I want you to see how he got to this point I want to unpack this for a second 
First, there's a road. Here's the situation, friends. The road that goes from Jerusalem to Jericho is a very steep, very twisty, winding road, and it actually had a nickname. It was called the Way of Blood. <laughs> I'd like to take that one. In 17 miles, it descends 3,300 feet. It's twisted, steep, surrounded by rocky cliffs. It was the perfect hideout for robbers who would often attack travelers on the road. And the situation that Jesus tells is that in the story, a guy finds himself in that predicament. The robbers have come out. It gives the implication that they took the man's money. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him up. They left him for dead. And then the first two characters arrive. The first one is the priest. He's coming from Jerusalem. And we can just kind of assume. We don't know for sure, but he may have been coming from his priestly duties, serving in the temple, we know that Jericho was a popular kind of countryside resort for people who wanted to get away, especially the upper class, which the priests would have been a part of. So maybe he was leaving his priestly duties in the temple and heading down for some R&R. &R, and it says he saw the man and he passed by on the other side. Now when it says this, friends, I don't want you to think of as walking down Winter Lake Road and passing to the other side. It would be kind of like walking on the sidewalk and passing to the other side. It's a very narrow, tiny little lane. And it establishes what a guy by the name of Ken Bailey writes about in his book, Through Peasant Eyes. He says, here's the pattern in the story. The priest came on the road. That's the come part. He saw the man. That's the do part. And he passed by on the other side. It is the go part. Then the second character comes, the Levite. Now, these are people, again, a little inferior to the priest, but they still have temple duties. They're still in a privileged class. And it's the same exact pattern for the Levite. The Levite came to the place. The Levite saw the man. And then the Levite passed on the other side and went on his way, the go portion. So these basically, they follow the same pattern, get this, as the robbers. <laughs> the robbers came. They robbed the man. They beat him up, and then they went. They left. They came, they saw, and they went. And what Jesus is trying to show people here is that there's two sins involved. One certainly is the violence that the robbers dished out to this man. But there may be even a more damaging sin here committed by the other two characters, and that is their neglect to help a fallen human being. And their failed opportunity actually becomes a transgression. Now, here's the deal. The people who are listening to this story, along with the lawyer, are probably tracking pretty well with Jesus right now. <laughs> They're not terribly surprised that neither one of these characters step in. And I'm going to tell you why. They're imagining themselves in the story. And this is what you have to do and what I have to do. They're clicking off in their mind all the reasons why they couldn't stop to help this guy. So let's, let's apply this now. Why do we tend to walk by or look over or disregard or neglect the opportunities we have to help people? And when you think about it, you don't really have to look further than this story because nothing's really changed in 2,000 years. One of the reasons is because loving can be messy. Here's what I know about pastoral ministry. This is all I really know after 30 years. It can be so messy. 
life can just be so messy. And you know, you think about it from the priestly duties of the Levite and the priest. According to the ritual laws, they would actually be defiled by a corpse. So if they touch this body legitimately, they would consider themselves defiled. And he had to go through, the priest did, an entire process to be cleansed so that he could then begin his priestly duties again. So with all that was going on and the thought that this guy could be dead and he would be a corpse, this guy says, I can't stop. Now I know we don't have many ritual cleansing laws, thank goodness, today. But I want to tell you something, when you step in to help a person who needs help, it can get messy quick. It is almost impossible to stay at an arm's distance and be compassionate. Usually, usually you have to crawl in a ditch, roll up your sleeves, and get muddy. Listen, when a couple is going through a divorce and a custody battle starts, it gets messy. When a wife is being abused and she reaches out to you for help, it gets messy. When an alcoholic keeps falling off the wagon, it gets messy. And what you have to make is you have to make a decision firmly in your heart. Will you stay clean? Or do you really want to love Jesus and those people the way that he loves them? The other thing that has to be going through their mind is that not only is loving messy, but it's risky. I'm talking about risk in several ways. See, it was a common practice in Jesus' day for robbers. They were really smart guys. They would actually take one of their own people, one of the robbers, and they would lay on the road and they would act as a decoy. They would act like they had been beaten up. And so when this person stopped to help them, they would actually then spring up and spring out of behind the cliffs and rob them. So they have to be thinking to themselves, the Levite and the priest, as they come along, this guy may not even be legit. You ever thought that in your mind? <laughs> you ever thought that it's safer to be safe than sorry? It's better to be safe than sorry? Boy, in a world filled with danger, in a world that is much more dangerous, it seems like, than it was even 15 years ago, it's hard to live in a world that's high on paranoia and low on compassion, isn't it? I'll tell you another risk about loving. Many times you'll be put in a position where your love for certain people will not be very popular. Sometimes it will mean crossing a social, racial, cultural barrier that will automatically put you against the flow. I want to say something here real quick that I didn't plan to say. I'm very proud of those of you in this congregation who are willing to do that, who are willing to love people beyond the normal borders. I want to say this, because of your decision, you're going to be misunderstood. You'll dine with sinners. You're going to be ridiculed. Look, he's not with his own people. You're going to be ostracized by some people, just like Jesus was. He's more comfortable with the peasants and the tax collectors than he was with his own kind. See, there's all these social barriers going on in this story. 
And the listeners, the people who are listening to the story, they're trying to figure out exactly why wouldn't they stop to help this guy? And any, any Jewish person knew that they had a list of people they could help and people they couldn't help. This guy could be a non-Jew. There were no clothes to distinguish him. He wasn't speaking with a dialect. If the priest touched a dead body, then there was, you know, that whole non-Jewish ritual implication. So they just moved on. I read one of the most interesting studies I've ever read. In this study, they created a scene involving a motorist who had broken down on the side of a busy highway. And the way they set the scene up is they put the car hood up, they turned on their emergency flashers, and then they had different individuals stand by the car to see who would stop to help the stranded motorist. And the catch was is that they used different people to portray the role of the motorist. The results are staggering. When an elderly white woman stood by the car, 14 people stopped by that car. Three people stopped uh, to help. All of them, no, I'm sorry, when an elderly black lady stood by the car, three people stopped to help. All of them were black males, and it took 18 minutes for the first person to stop. When a young white male stood by the car, only four people stopped to help within the hour, and it took 16 minutes for the first car to stop. That was great compared to the test involving a young black man. He stood by that car for a full hour without one single person stopping to help until finally a young black lady pulled over and offered to call for help with her cell phone. Compare that to the response when they had a very attractive young white lady stand by the car. In a span of one hour, 68 people stopped to help. The first one stopped in 15 seconds. Need to say more. It's going to be risky, guys. It is. If you really want to love, this is tough stuff we're talking about today. One more thing about this. Love and loving is going to be costly. I'm talking about two commodities here, basically two that we have, and that is time. It's going to take time. It's never going to fit on your schedule. It's never going to be able to be, you know, folded up into an app. Maybe the Levites late to soccer practice again. We don't know. People always say this. Don't we say this all the time? There's just not enough time in the day. If you struggle with that, I just want to say this gently. Yes, there is. God knew exactly what he was doing when he created the sun to come up and go down in 24 hours. There's enough time in every day. We do not need more than 24 hours. You're going to have to give up something. I love what Andy Stanley, he's a pastor up in Atlanta. Most of you heard him or know of him. He talks about cheating. He says, any time in your life that you choose to do something, you're going to have to cheat someone else. And by cheating, he means that somebody or something is probably going to get cheated when it comes to your time and availability. For example, if you take on another project at work, you're going to have to cheat from somewhere. If you decide to coach your kid's softball team, you're going to have to cheat from somewhere. If you decide to start a side business or a hobby, make a little extra money, you're going to have to cheat to do it. 
And always the question is, who or what will get cheated? It could be our spouse or our reading time. It could be our kids or our TV time. It could be God or our recreational time. We're going to have to decide about time. The second thing is it's going to take money. Think about what this guy gave up. We don't like to give up our money. I love the story about the man who loved more money more than anything else in the world. He told his wife just before he was dying. He said, listen, baby, when I die, I want you to take all my money that I have. I want you to put it in the casket with me. I'm going to take it to the afterlife. And when he died, she did what she had promised him to do. She came to the, uh, the wake. She took a box and put it in the casket. The undertaker locked the casket down, rolled it away, and one of her friends said to her, girl, she said, I, I know you weren't stupid enough to actually put that money in there with your husband. She said, look, I'm a Christian. I can't go back on my word. I promised him that I was going to put that money in that casket with him, and that's exactly what I did. And her friend says, you mean to tell me that you put the money in the casket with him forever? And she said, I sure did. She said, I wrote him a check. <laughs> <laughs> you see, some people try to hang on to it as long as they can. Loving is going to be costly. But I'll tell you this. God has never asked you to pay a price that you and he cannot afford together. The priest and the Levite had become a prisoner of their own religious system. And I'll tell you, the church of Jesus today faces that same danger. It is, impossible, it is t entirely possible that we could become religious without being Christ-like. And we can point our finger at politicians and social reformers and never consider what are we doing to help other human beings. And that brings us to this point. And that is the list of reasons why the Samaritan did stop. Why did he help this guy? Here's the list, and I'm just going to read it off for you. And there's only one thing on it. The Samaritan had the heart that would not allow him to do anything else but stop. This guy had matured in his understanding of love to the point that when the crucial moment, when the crossroads moment came in his life, he could not do anything else. And the priest and the Levite may have been great guys, but they just didn't have the heart. Now I want you to imagine people listening to this story, and they think they figured it out. Remember three classes of people, priest, Levite, and the third one is the layperson or the Joseph Jew. First walks by, that kind of makes sense. Second person passes by. They're figuring it out. Okay, that makes sense. The hero of the story is going to be the Jewish person who's going to be the dude, the guy. So they begin to anticipate what's going to happen next. A regular guy is going to come along and he's going to be the hero. And Jesus just blows that away. You have to understand the shock value of this. Jesus is going to take the villain of the story and turn him into the hero. 
I want you to understand the perspective of this. If Jesus were telling this story today, he would still tell the story maybe about the good Palestinian. If he was talking to the Palestinians, he might sit them down and say, let me tell you the parable of the good Israeli. If he were here in the United States, he might say, let me tell you the story of the good Muslim. And people were expecting one thing, and the most unthinkable thing happens. I want us to apply this today, so as we go home, here's three things I want you to take very quickly. If you really want to grow a heart, if you really, really want that, then you have to do what this guy did. The first thing he did was he walked around with his eyes wide open. Just open your eyes. It says, when he saw him, he took pity on him. It doesn't have to be obvious things. But every day, just open your eyes to people who need encouragement, to people who need help with their kids, to people who are right there in the cubicle next to you. If you open your eyes, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God will whisper to you at times, here's your chance. Here's your Samaritan moment. Here's your rocky mountain cliff moment. The next thing you can do is what this guy did. He went to him. He bandaged him. He took the man on his donkey, put, took him to an inn, and took care of him. And that is this. You're going to have to take a risk. You're going to have to be vulnerable. You're going to have to put yourself out there at times. Listen, and people may question your motives. They may belittle your efforts. You can never guarantee their response. You can only guarantee your action. They may take advantage of you. They may not say thank you. They may actually, they may actually reject your help. You are not responsible for that. You are responsible, and I am responsible to love. And then the last thing. He took out two silver coins. He told the innkeeper, look after him, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any travel expense or extra expense you have. And this guy teaches us about going the extra mile. Jesus goes into great detail here, and I won't go into it here he gives us a list of all these things that this man did. This is a guy that has matured in love. I would love to have been there <laughs> when Jesus finished the story and a hush had fallen over the crowd because Jesus never answers the question, who is my neighbor? And in this round of debates, there's still one question left, and there's two answers. In verse 36, Jesus reshapes the lawyer's question, and he says, Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Again, they wanted a list. Tell me exactly who to love, Jesus. And Jesus can't give them a list, so Jesus gives them this. He says, To whom must you become a neighbor? This is the point, really, of the whole day. Love does not begin by defining its object. Love discovers its object. By that I mean, you and I will not know in the morning who our neighbor will be. Because throughout the day, God will reveal that person to us. 
You and I don't necessarily know right now who our neighbor is going to be in an hour or two from now. But God will bring that person into our life. Who must we become a neighbor to? What must I do to be a good person? And Jesus just answers the question. Let me show you the fruit of a person whose heart has been touched by the Father. Let me show you the kind of person who has to love people because he just can't do anything else. And I love the way this guy responds. Jesus says to him, to whom must you become a neighbor? Two answers. The expert in the law replied when he asked the question of him, who had who was really the neighbor? The expert says, the one who had mercy on him. This guy doesn't even have the courage to call him a Samaritan. He just says to him, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus looks at him and he says what he says to us. Go and do likewise. Let's pray. Lord, we're going to share in remembering the great sacrifice And the great love that compelled you to the cross and compelled you to love us so much. As we remember that, I pray that we would stare into the face of our brother and sister. We would ask ourselves the question right now, is there any bigotry in me? Is there any racism? Is there any sexism? Is there, is there any um, exclusivity in my heart? any at all have I been walking by with my eyes shut have I been living in fear have I been doing the least amount possible may we consider who our neighbor is today and may you show them to us in these last few moments amen